some people would just rather make that conservative decision. I'll just go buy a townhouse on the weekend because I can see that. I know what that's worth. It's already built. There's no problems. Rather than you know, take the risk and reward of doing a development. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Property Developer Podcast. It's great to have you with me. I have a good conversation coming up with a professional development manager about what's involved with managing a project for clients. Before we get to that, here's what I've been up to. I've been doing some serious due diligence on a site that I would really like to buy. So I've been in discussion with the key people in my team about what we think is possible with the site. It is a location I'm very familiar with, so that helps to fast track some of the items I need to tick off. Hopefully I can get this one across the line and get another project into the pipeline. We'll keep you posted on how I go. Now, I get lots of emails from listeners who have expressed an interest in becoming a property developer. And why not? It's a great, challenging career. However, many people don't know how to start, what to learn, or, more importantly, who to trust. So I've decided to partner up with the guy who taught me how to develop. So my listeners have a choice of talking with someone I think is legit, and who I believe runs a very good, structured program to teach you the nuts and bolts of the development process. In fact, I'm still using the methods and tools he taught me to this day. Listeners of the show will have preferred access to the program with bonus offerings and discounted rates. I will share more with you in upcoming episodes, including a chat with the man himself, so you can get to know him. If you can't wait until then, just email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and I can answer any questions you may have. I'm excited about sharing this with you and potentially helping people get started on their developing journey. Okay, on to today's guest. Bryce Yardney is a development manager with Metropole Property. I spoke with his father, Michael Yardney, in episode 36. So go back and take a listen to that if you want to know how Michael got his property investment business going. Bryce is responsible for managing around 50 projects for clients, so has lots of experience acquiring sites, getting permits, and building product. In this conversation, we discuss common developing pitfalls to avoid, the foundational principles that will set up a project to succeed, and what happens when your builder goes bankrupt before completion? I started off by asking Bryce what food he would eat until he was sick. Pizza. Pizza's definitely my weakness. I could eat that all day. Any particular type? Uh, meat lovers, usually. Maybe, maybe a bit of a supreme, a lot. No, you, not fussy. Any kind of pizza. Are you a thick base guy or the thin crust? Thin, definitely thin. I've actually changed my opinion lately because I went to America for the first time, tried the New York slices, and converted me a bit. Oh yeah, because so they're huge. Big fan of thin. Huge yeah, and thin. Huge slices, thin base, just good cheese, good tomato sauce, not much else. Used to be a big fan of the lots of toppings and the meat lovers, but I've uh, I've been exposed and converted. <laughs> He's scaling it back. Yeah. <laughs> I reckon pizza's probably mine as well. Uh, and I have eaten pizza until I felt sick. <laughs> yeah, and we all. Well, we're here today to talk about property development, and you're involved in managing a lot of developments. But before we get to that, can you tell us how you got to the position you are today and then a little bit about what you actually do day to day? Yeah, sure. 
so I got exposed to property development at a really young age, driving around with my dad when I was 10, 12, 15 years old on the weekends. He, he's been involved in, in property development for longer than I've been alive. So exposed at a young age, always seen something attractive about it, uh, always didn't know it was what I wanted to do in my life, but uh, as I got older, it started to become clearer. Went and did a four-year project management degree at RMIT uh, in, in Melbourne, and after that, started working here at Metropolis about eight years ago. Started as more of an apprenticeship-type role. Uh, we, One of my father's business partners, uh, Gavin Taylor, was an architect, so I learned a lot from him. He was a very conservative, um, architect-based developer. So learned a lot from him, learned a lot from some really good mentors around me, started just in a purely project management role, moved on to doing purchasing properties as well, including feasibilities, due diligence, uh, purchasing, right, taking clients all the way through their development. Uh, Now managing the development department at Metropole, we're doing roughly just over 50 development for our clients and yeah that's that's my background and so when you were a kid getting taken around with your dad to development sites what are the things that you remember that stick into your mind uh sometimes wasn't a big fan of it because sometimes i wanted to do other things on the weekend but when we were there he um he had the ability to just look at something and you know, straight away know that that was a good development site, that was a bad development site, I can make money off that, I can't make money off that. Uh, and that was something that you, know, you looked up to, just that ability to make such a big decision so quickly. You uh, obviously know what you're doing and, and, and know a lot about something to be able to do that. You know, that back of the napkin type feasibility study that people talk about. I remember taking my seven-year-old son out to my last development when it was finished in the garden, the landscaping had been put in. I thought I'd get him out there to help me kind of just water the garden. I remember doing <laughs> that It lasted well. about five minutes. <laughs> I remember doing that as well. I had to stand there for half an hour, an hour, and just water the garden so it would grow. And before the, the tenants moved in or before it was sold, keep the garden alive. And tell us about the projects that you work on now. So we're doing mostly smaller scale developments, two, three townhouse developments in predominantly the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, a lot in the municipality of Glenira, we're doing some Bayside, uh, some Stonington, some Monash, uh, Kingston, so a little bit all over the place, but the vast majority southeastern suburb. Duplex style, side by side, some front and back, some three units, all four other clients people coming to us looking to invest in property and we basically everything a developer would do for themselves we do for them so you're a development manager development manager buyer's agent bit of everything so it it starts from the beginning and getting people's uh structure set up people's finance set up finding them the site doing the due diligence making sure it works as a development site doing the feasibility making sure that going to make some money off, off going through this whole process and spending a lot of money, taking them through town planning, getting them the permit, uh, all the construction documentation, getting them a builder, a building permit, contracts, finance, and then we take on more of a supervisory role in the construction stage, making sure that quality is there, timeframes are there, representing them, their interest, solving the problems on site that, that always happen. And... 
talk, take us through some of those steps. Let's go through, what about due diligence? What are sure. the things you're looking at when you're going through a site? I usually start with the physical, the size, the shape, the slope, nasty trees on the property or power poles in the wrong position or Telstra pits in the wrong position. Anything that's going to limit us in doing the kind of development we want to do on the site. We look for a house that is usually in decent condition. We want it to be close to land value because it's going to be land value in a year or so once we get our permits and knock it down. Uh, But we want something livable, something rentable for a couple of reasons. Number one is that it uh, gives you a bit of cash flow, a bit of um, money paying that interest bill while you're getting your plans and permits, especially if that takes a little bit longer than you expect. It's always nice to have that there. Uh, It's someone just to take care of the place for you. You avoid squatters, um, someone to mow the lawns and, and take care of the property. And number three, probably the most important one, is that it's a fallback position for people if for whatever reason life gets in the way something happens and you can't build this straight away worst comes to worst you're sitting on this property for five years ten years whatever it might be come back and develop it when you can but you've got a livable rentable house and someone's living in there uh, while it's all happening then we're looking at the legal side of it as well easements covenants local planning restrictions state planning restrictions again anything that's going to get in our way and, and prevent us doing what we want to do with the site. So it's really working backwards. Here's a block of land. This is what I want to put on it. What's going to get in my way? And so how are you sourcing your site? So you're looking for particular blocks, block sizes or yeah, particular sure. streets or just something comes on the market or you've got relationships with agents? How are you sourcing your sites? It's a little bit of everything. We're just looking for the opportunities wherever they come. If that's online and you see it on realestate.com or domain.com, fine. Yeah, we have a lot of good relationships and, and contacts as well. Built some good networks over the years. Buying as much as, as we do. Uh, agents love us because if there's an off-market property, if they have to sell quickly, if it's a deceased estate and it doesn't need to go on the auction, auction market and be advertised online, they know that we're serious. We're looking for development sites. We've got clients that are ready to buy. So... The majority of our purchases are off-market through those relationships. And take us, take us through the, the planning phase. You've obviously mm. been through it a few times. What do you try and do to smooth it out or the issues that you've come up against or to take us through some of the challenges of how you get through it? I think a lot of that comes through experience and a good understanding of what councils will allow, what they won't allow because you don't want to push the boundaries too far. You don't want to go to VCAT. That's a lot of time, a lot of expense, and there's no guarantees of victory. So understanding when to fight, um, when not to fight, when you're just wasting your time and your, and your money, I think a lot of it comes down to that. Uh, having a good relationship, good town planners, that's essential as well. Town planners that perhaps have those relationships in council that you don't can have those conversations that, that you can't. That's always helpful as well. And then construction, you're just engaging contractors to do the building for you? Yeah, we put together all the documentation, architectural drawings, engineering, specifications, landscape, energy, plan of subdivision, everything that they're going to need to give us a fixed price, fixed duration quote for a building contract because we don't want the pricing for unknowns, pricing for risks. It's all laid out there for them. Uh, 
and then we use a competitive tender process, give them everything they need, get us the best prices after four weeks. So it really should just come down to the best price wins. And you said you've got about 50 developments on the go at the moment. That's a fair few projects to be managing. So how do you physically manage that many projects? Well, we've got got a team of people. It's not just me. Uh, That's the key thing, I think, is having good people and and people with different areas of expertise as well. Because to be fantastic at everything is a lot to ask in the development game. Uh, So we've got people that are... uh, background in construction have been builders have worked for builders uh, people with great town planning knowledge so it's essential to, to have that team to delegate to break it up between people in their various areas of, of expertise to keep everything moving smoothly and and having the right person in the right seat at the right time and so do you use a project management system or some way of not really. Managing the projects through? It's really our own system that we've come up with and adapted over the years, having done so many. It's constantly being refined and the world around us is constantly changing. Town planning rules are changing. Uh, construction methods and, and um, costs and everything is changing. So it has to constantly evolve. But really it's just our own system we've been working on and still are working on. All right, so 50 projects on the go. There has to be some uh, challenges at the moment. What are the kind of ones that jump straight out at you that you're trying to fix at the moment? Our biggest challenge usually comes from... It's usually people. It it always comes down to people. When it comes to construction, most things can be solved quite easily. People getting involved, people getting uh, emotional about things, that is usually what gets in the way and, and hurts themselves ultimately more than anything else. Because at the end of the day, the client's paying for pretty much everything. Uh, so people forget that it's an investment, it's a business, get way, way, way too involved in it and ruin relationships, relationships with people, with the, the consultants, with builders, and that causes the breakdown more than anything. So there's things like fit-outs and interiors... Yeah getting involved and choosing colours and specs and then changing it a hundred times because that's what you do. That's all you think about. Um, people, if you're difficult, people don't want to work with you and that that ruins development sometimes. And so so we, there must be stages along the way where you're aware that things can come up regularly or issues come up regularly. Can you articulate what some of those are? Starting from the beginning, town planning is always a tricky one, again, just because of people involved. Sometimes it's council. You might get resistance from them on your plans that you've submitted. Uh, you might get resistance from neighbours. Sometimes it can go, go through really smoothly. I had one yesterday. We got the results of advertising back and had six objections. And some very well written. Some had gone and engaged town planners to represent them. So occasionally you get people like that. Uh, getting in your way. As long as you're playing by the rules in council, sometimes objections don't matter. But having said that, any person can, if they know the system, if they understand it, they want to abuse it, can drag it out, can delay you, even if they can't stop you. So town planning is probably the number one risky stage, the unknown stage where people can get involved and, and really ruin your plans. After that, it's, it's relatively straightforward. Sure, there might be issues in, in construction. I think we had one 
a couple of months ago, we were digging the foundations uh, and they came across an old septic tank in the ground. Yeah. What can you do about that? And just get rid of it, fill it in with concrete and move on. So technical issues like that are usually easier ones to solve. And so with the planning, what did, what steps or what measures do you put in place to help mitigate or try and ensure that you can overcome those hurdles? I think the number one is have a compliant application so that if people are objecting, they don't have much of a leg to stand on. And there's two elements to town planning controls. Number one is the, the quantitative uh, setbacks, heights, things with numbers, and they're really easy to be compliant with. And if you step outside those boundaries, you're asking for trouble. Then there's the qualitative uh, assessment as well, which is things like neighbourhood character, visual bulk. What does that mean? It means whatever somebody wants it to mean. It means one thing to one town planner and another thing to another town planner. So when it comes to those things, it's a lot harder. But having that understanding of you know what does neighbourhood character mean to this council, what does neighbourhood character mean to that council, that really helps. Uh, try not to push the boundaries with a design that you've fallen in love with if you know that you're asking for trouble there. Don't get emotional in it. It's an investment. Is the facade really going to add X amount of dollars uh, to your development? Maybe, maybe not. Visual bulk and neighbourhood character are two dirty words for me at the moment, Bryce. They are. <laughs> to out here inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what have you learnt about developing along the way? I've, I've learnt that as a developer or as a project manager in development, you've really got to be jack of all trades. You've got to understand so many aspects of, of property, of development, starting at the very start when you're buying a property, you've got to understand real estate, you've got to understand town planning so that you can do your due diligence on a site and not run into nasty surprises later. You've got to understand numbers and figures and feasibility studies, otherwise you're really just going in blind, you're guessing and you might end up not making as much money or potentially losing money at the end. That's before you even buy the property. Then once you get into it, again, you've got a really good understanding of town planning to get your permit through council because if you don't get it through council, you can't build it, wasting your time. You've got to understand the market around you. That's who you're building for. That's who you're selling to. That's who you're potentially renting to if you're holding on to it. Uh, you've got to understand the demographics of people there as well and how that's changing. Who are you building for? The people that are there now, perhaps the people that are going to be there in two years' time when you finish or ten years' time because you're holding on to them in the long term. Then you've got to have a good understanding of construction. Uh, You don't need to be an architect. You don't need to be an engineer. You don't need to be a builder, but you should have at least a basic understanding of all those things so that you can look at a plan and say that's no good, so that you can look at an engineering design and say that's really expensive. We can probably save a bit of money here uh, so that you can solve the construction problems on site that will inevitably come up. So you've got to have a little bit of knowledge in a lot of areas. And then in terms of managing your clients, what kind of queries do they have or have? what kind of communication do they like to get or what do you provide and what are the questions that you get along the way frequently? I know there'd be heaps of questions, but what are the sort of regular ones people want to know or clients want to know? Sure. I think the best thing to do when it comes to communicating with clients and, and perhaps answering those questions before they come up is set the expectations really well at the start. Before we even look at buying a site for a client, 
I will sit down with them for at least an hour, go through the whole development process, tell them what they're in for for the next couple of years and explain it to them right from the front, set the expectations of you know the, the headaches along the way and you know, this is the problems we could face along the way. That helps people be prepared for it. That uh, answers a lot of questions for them. It brings up a lot of questions at the very start that they may not have even thought about before. So I think that's that's the number one thing. And then along the way, different people want to be involved different amounts. We have a lot of clients that are very good at what they do, uh, very wealthy, but don't understand development or don't have the time for development and don't want to be involved. And that's great. I love that kind of client that just <laughs> sit back and let us do it, sit back and let us do everything. Some people do want to be involved and some people want to make the decisions. I've got no issues with that. A lot of people have questions around design. Some people have never designed anything before, never looked at a, at a floor plan too seriously before, can't picture a floor plan. They need to go out and physically see a property to, to understand what they're looking at on a piece of paper. Uh, most people don't understand the town planning process, but relatively simple one, once that explain, is explained. And then the most common questions after that are around specifications and colour choices and tiles. That's what people will understand. That's what they like to be involved in. can be a little bit of fun within reason. Um, so as, as long as they don't get too emotional about it, it's got no issue with people being involved and having a bit of fun at that stage. So what are the good questions that you like to hear from a client that indicates to you it's probably someone that you want to work with and that will uh, benefit from going through the project? And on the flip side, the alarming questions that you get that set the alarm bells off where you go, maybe this isn't the right person or people that we want to be partnering with on a project. Yeah, sure. I think the questions we like to hear are, yeah, around processes, around timeframes, around costs. They're the common questions that, that analytical people want to know. Uh, they need to understand something before they get into it. And that's great. I love working with people like that that, that want to understand, that, that want to um, uh, be involved, at least to some extent. What we don't like is people asking about colour choices rather than that. Oh, I really like purple feature wall in the living room I want to do one of them you know you're in trouble with people like that or people that look at your agreement look at your contract start ripping it apart and it's red flags right there what are you thinking about you're already thinking about what's what's going to go wrong what's going to happen at the end can be really common with clients that are solicitors people involved in, in the legal profession but as long as we have an understanding going in and everybody has the same expectations. I think we can all work together. And you've already touched on a couple of situations or issues that you've had to deal with. What casting your mind back over your history and various projects, what kind of tricky situations spring to mind that you've had to solve over the years? Number one that comes to mind for me is it was about six, maybe seven years ago now. We had a builder go bust on us. He um, was building a few projects. This was around the time, you know, just after GFC, where a lot of builders were struggling. A lot of builders were going bust left, right, and centre, and we weren't immune to that. Um, and it hurt us a lot. Hurt a lot of our builders. And this builder was halfway through one project. Was uh, just finished another, and it just started on. 
the base of another project. And suddenly they were gone. Um, they were bankrupt, couldn't finish the project. So we had to get involved with the insurance companies. Just in case people don't know what you have to do when you take out, um, when you get a building permit for a building for a development, is you need homeowner's warranty insurance that covers you in the case of a builder going bankrupt, a builder dying, or a builder disappearing. So one of those was triggered for us. The builder went bankrupt, so we had to go through the insurance process. Uh, they had to come out. They had to assess it. They had to say, yep, they're definitely halfway through. They've got this much left. Uh, and then you've got to find a builder to take on a job that somebody else is halfway through or that somebody's just started, and that's really difficult as well. But we managed to do it. We managed to get through the insurance hurdles to find a builder that would uh, finish the projects and make some pretty big insurance claims along the way. So luckily for our clients, they didn't end up losing money. They had a lot of headaches. They lost a bit of time uh, in, in finding the builders and getting through all the insurance things, but we solved it in the end. What's that like trying to find a builder to take over a project? Because it's almost one of the worst things that can happen halfway through or some stage through construction, you lose your builder and you've got to find someone to step in. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it's absolutely really difficult because a builder has to warranty their work and now they're warranting somebody else's work. Nobody wants to do that. So they've got to put a big risk margin on whatever they're they're building for you. And the only way that that made sense was with that insurance claim. You can claim up to 20% of the building contract value in your insurance claim. So if we're talking about a million-dollar project, that's 200000 That might be the kind of margin that a builder's putting on something that you know, they have to warranty somebody else's work. Who knows what, what's happening they can't go and check the slab. They can't go and check under the slab. They can't check all the pipes and the electrical work. So they have to price for that risk and you have to put up with it and hope that the insurance claim covers it because, yeah, it's, it's really difficult to find someone to do that. Most people will just say, too hard, no thank you. So what do they do? They go on site, inspect the slab. I mean, what stage were you up to? Had the frames up or...? The one that was halfway through was roughly lock-up. I think that we'd, we'd just finished lock-up which means that, yeah, there was, there was a lot of stuff there that... A lot of hidden... Hidden stuff that you couldn't see that made it really difficult. you just got to do the best you can and then allow that risk margin for things that you can't see, which is why a lot of people are hesitant because there's a lot that you can't see. And what have you seen evolve over the time that you've been pro- development management or project managing projects... What things have you seen change? What's become common? What's stayed the same? I think we're getting better with town planning. We're understanding that we're going to have a whole lot more people living here uh, really soon. We need to densify. Uh, people are starting to understand that we're not seeing as many objections of, no, I don't want development in my street. Now it's you know, things like privacy, overlooking, overshadowing is becoming a lot more common. So I think as a city where accepting development needs to happen, we need to start turning these old run-down houses on big blocks into two, into three, into four, whatever it might be. So that's a step in the right direction, I think, because one way or another, it does need to happen. Construction-wise, I think people are starting to expect more as well, because 
as land values increase, properties that were worth 500000 10 years ago are now worth a million bucks, which means that the townhouse you're going to put on it is probably worth a million bucks. And people are expecting something really nice for, for that kind of price tag. So the expectation of the market, the expectation of not only the, the sales market, the rental market has gone up considerably over the last five years, over the last 10 years, and, and you have to keep up with that. And so how do you do that? How do you stay ahead of the curve or how do you get the feedback from the market about what inclusions or what specs and standards to construct the dwellings to? Got to do your research. Got to, you can do some of it online, see what other people are doing, go out and have a look at other developments yourself. Keep on top of trends, speak to real estate agents, what do people like, what do people not like. Um, yeah, really just don't have to reinvent the wheel every every day. Just keep a track of pe- things other people are doing and what they're doing well and copy what they're doing well and stay away from what they're doing badly. The problem with asking agents about what to include is that they just want you to spec it out to amazing standards <laughs> because it's easier to sell. It doesn't necessarily uh, help with your profit margins. Absolutely. Chuck yeah. the Spanish stone bench tops in there, three toilets... Yeah, you've got to take what they say with a grain of salt. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you've got a team. Mm. How do you coordinate everybody and the projects that they're working on? Internally or yeah. externally? Well, both. I think that's made really easy by building a good team from the start. It makes coordination a whole lot easier. You've got to have good team players. We've worked with some particularly bad consultants, bad architects, bad engineers that just aren't team players and it makes everybody's job a whole lot harder. So I think number one is getting not only a good team of consultants but a a good team of team players that will work together, that will um, form those good working relationships. We want to have some aspect of control of everything, all communication does need to go through us so that we can keep a track of everything. It doesn't become he said, she said, or or things get lost. Everything comes through us, but at the same time, empower people to, to be able to make decisions and do things themselves as well and, and set the expectations from the start, but uh, give people a little bit of, of, of power to do things themselves. And the clients that you have or that come to you, what, what kind of people are they? What, why are they wanting to get involved in the development? Why do they want to partner with you? A whole lot of our clients are working professionals that, usually high-income earners, don't understand property, don't understand development, or there's some people that are particularly smart particularly good in development, but just don't have the time. And they see the value in employing us to give them that time back and they stick to what they're doing, what they're really good at, what they can make more money doing and and pay us to do their development. Or we get some people that don't even know they want to do development. They'll come to us just looking to invest in property, to, to do something with their money, invest their money, and we propose the idea to them and... Not everyone has the headspace to do it. Most people certainly don't have the money to do it. But if you do have both of those, fantastic. And um, we do a development together. 
So when you talk about not having the headspace, what is the, what do people get scared off about, or what, what, the hesitation? Where does that stem from? I think a big one for people is is debt, because the vast majority of people have to take on a lot of debt to, to do a development. Some people are very fearful of that, and then there's all the other risks that come with development. What if the market does badly? What if you don't get your way in, in, in council or with nasty neighbours? What if there's construction cost blowouts, interest rate changes? Some people would just rather make that conservative decision, I'll just go buy a townhouse on the weekend because I can see that, I know what that's worth, it's already built, there's no problems, rather than you know, take the risk and reward of doing a development. You've touched on finance, yeah, which is... An important part of any project, given you're involved in a lot of applications, what have you learnt about financial, about funding for projects and financial applications? It's become a lot more difficult over the last year or two than, than what it used to be. It's really all about people's ability to service the loans now, and serviceability calculators are you're being calculated at a lot higher than what you're actually paying. You know, for example, I'm paying low 4% interest on my interest-only loans, but it's being calculated at uh, you know, 7 point something percent principal and interest. So when you look at it that way, they're assuming you've got to pay back probably about double what you are actually paying. And that's holding a lot of people back, especially high net worth clients, people that have a lot of debt um, because they've got big portfolio, lots of assets, it's hurting them even more. The more debt you have, the higher your, your repayments are going to be. So it's really about cash flow, about being able to service the debt, show that serviceability to the banks. And when it comes to development, uh, the first stage is usually just a residential, uh, an investment loan. Um, after that, it gets into a construction loan. You're going to the bank and you're saying, I'm going to be getting even less money because I'm knocking down my house. It's going to be vacant for a year. So my income's going down, but I want to borrow another million bucks. I want to borrow another two million bucks, whatever it might be. So anticipate that at the start. Know what you're in for. Speak to a good finance strategist, not a finance broker, someone that understands development in particular and the cash flow requirements, the timeframes of it, uh, so that you don't get stuck halfway through. You don't find out when you're going for a construction loan. No you're not going to be get, getting one for a long time. So set it up at the start. And how are you finding the funding market? You're obviously doing some regular applications. How are you finding the applications to the banks or whichever funders you're using? Are they scrutinising them more? Are they yeah. knocking more back? What's, what are you seeing? Yeah, definitely. The pool of lenders that are lending for this kind of development has certainly shrunk over the years. There's still some good ones out there, though. So it's not all doom and gloom just got to have the right finance strategies to help you get through it find you the right lender and then give us your forecast on where you see the markets or the markets going obviously for me is a more Melbourne centric kind of question but I guess you've got some exposure across other markets but what are you seeing or predicting I think this year is going to be a little bit slower than what we've seen in the last few years, it has to be. We've had some ridiculously good years for the last three or four years now. and But it's not going to go backwards. I think we're just going from you know, fourth gear to maybe third or, or second gear. It'll be a, 
six, seven, eight percent kind of year in Melbourne. But in the long term, we've got the job growth, we've got the population growth, we've overtaken Sydney for that. So medium to long term, we'll do well. In the short term, uh, it'll be a little bit slower than, than the last few years. But I don't think until interest rate rises, I don't think we're going to be going anywhere close to backwards. What would you say is your top tip for developers out there looking to take their business to the next level? I'd say remember that it is a business. Remember that it is an investment. It's not your home. You're not going to live there. Don't get emotionally involved. If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. Don't go spending things on things that you're emotionally attached to or that you like. Go back to your market research. Go back to your demographics, who you're building this for, who you're going to sell this to and really keep that business investment focus. Good advice. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. If you could sit down with any three people alive or dead for a meal, who would they be and why? Number one would have to be Elon Musk. I think he's just absolutely brilliant innovator. He's potentially going to take us to places that, humanity didn't think was possible not so long ago very inspirational man uh number two not alive anymore but steve jobs for really similar reasons he was just so far ahead of his time such a good innovator such a good leader and inspiring leader that just uh, changed the way we looked at at products at, at marketing at so many things and number three for me would have to be the rock I grew up watching him as a wrestler as a young kid, but he just seems more than anyone, he seems to have got life down well. He's, he's got it all. He's got the health, the fitness, super successful in, in business and family and everything. He just seems to have figured life out, which not many people have. It's Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson, The, the Rock. Rock. <laughs> <laughs> was an interesting mix there, Bryce. Yeah. I had to throw in one, one different one. <laughs> I like the rock. That's funny. All right. Well, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? You can go either to our company's website, metropole.com.au, or propertyupdate.com.au, where we do a lot of blogs and uh, education on on development and other property aspects like finance and renovations and property market in general. Very good. Well, Bryce Yardney, thank you so much for being on the Property Developer Podcast and very grateful to you for your time and for the thoughts that you've shared with us today. Thank you for having me. We'll see you later. See you later. All right, there you go, the inside mail from an experienced development manager. Thanks to Bryce for sharing his stories and tips with me. It was interesting for me to hear how paying clients like to be involved with their projects and some of the challenges that brings up. Not unexpected challenges, just issues to be dealt with along the way like everything else to do with the development. Here are three other lessons I took away from my chat with Bryce. One, outline the process and likely issues to prospective clients. If you are thinking of taking on board investors or working on behalf of someone else, it is a good idea to spend time educating them about the likely issues that will be faced, the timelines for getting things done, and other challenges that are bound to come up. I find that completing a project is never a straight line from buy to settle. There's always lots of twists and turns along the way, so making people aware of that is helpful for when that inevitable curly issue pops up. Two, 
don't get emotional about the product. I can understand how an investor client may want to get deeply involved in choosing finishes, colors, materials, etc. But as a professional developer, it is wise not to lose sight of the bigger picture when specking a property. And that's coming up with a product that suits the market and sells at a price that allows a sufficient margin for your effort and risk. The product should be suited for the end buyer and user, not necessarily the developer or project sponsor. Three, have good people on your team. Bryce mentioned that he has good people helping him manage the projects and they are skilled at solving problems and getting things done. Having the right people around you will enable you to delegate more effectively and ultimately leverage your time so you can focus on the things that will take your business to the next level. I like to select good people and allow them to take charge and put their skills to work in their area of expertise. On the flip side, don't be afraid to let people go who aren't performing. That's just about all for this episode. If you want to hear from other developers about their journey so far, try listening to episode 34 with architect-turned-developer Keith Miller or episode 15 with Brisbane developer Shane Hiscock. You can also find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com and you can see all my latest property development photos and videos on Instagram and Facebook under Property Developer Podcast. So until next time, may all your developments be fun and profitable. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.